Hello and welcome to Viewpoints. My name is Borsh Desain. I'll be with you for the next half hour. On today's show, high risk, high reward. A team of scientists drilled the ice core from Mount Logan's summit plateau. They hope to get a peek of the continent's past. A documentary produced by Megan Dooling in Revelstoke, BC. We're able to drill basically no matter what the weather was. And I believe it was 11 days of drilling with the drill being on about 14 hours a day. And um, it's a really long time to stay up there at that kind of altitude. I've never done such an experiment on myself staying, you know, around 18,000 feet for almost two weeks. And we keep an eye on the mountains as we travel to northern British Columbia to visit the Mount Leighton Hot Springs Resort. And walking through that location is, it's unlike any other location because it's so pristine. From the day it was shut down, it's remained private property, closed off to vandals and stuff. So walking around there, it's unbelievable. You can see the facility that was in operation and enjoyed by thousands of people for years. And then you can see the half of the resort that was under production, but never actually finished. So it was it was wild walking through there and getting to see that firsthand. Welcome to Viewpoints. A team of scientists led by the director of the Canadian Ice Core Lab spent 26 days in May drilling 327 meters of ice core from Mount Logan Summit Plateau. Mount Logan is located in the Yukon Territories. It's the highest mountain of Canada. It looms in the St. Ilias Range at some 6,000 meters. And it's the second largest in North America after Mount Denali in nearby Alaska in the same mountain range. The team made it up to the summit plateau in 10 days at 5,200 meters. Most of them lost about 10% of their body weight. In the end, three of them had to be flown off Mount Logan. Mount Logan is the largest non-polar ice field in the world and drilling into the ancient ice should give scientists a sense of what's been going on in the continent's past. The team of scientists set up the 900-pound drill, flown in three separate helicopter trips and set up camp on the plateau. The team helper was a Revelstoke citizen, a Revelstoke BC citizen, Greg Hill, accepted the job with philosophy saying, strange invitations to travel might be dance lessons from God. Our journalist Megan Dooling caught up with Greg Hill and with one of the team's chief scientists, Dr. Alison Crisitello, who leads the Canadian Ice Core Lab team. They both recall this fantastic experience on Mount Logan. This documentary is quite extensive and complemented online with many pictures taken during the expedition to Mount Logan in the Yukon Territory. Please go to our Canada-info page to see them. Here's the Viewpoints version of this documentary. We'll be back in 20 minutes. There's a really cheesy quote that, I, that I've heard at some point that uh, strange suggestions of travel might be dance lessons from God. Super cheesy, but the truth is you kind of got to be open to things. Hey, uh, my name is Greg Hill. I'm a Revelstoke local, if somebody local is after 20 years. Middle of April, I got a phone call from a film crew that was heading up to Mount Logan, and they invited me along to be their Sherpa, their just kind of their camp helper, the guy that just does everything. And I'd worked with this Arcade Motion crew before, so they were keen on having me along. Greg was there 
along with the visual and sound um, person, you know, to help carry their huge loads. They had normal loads for climbing Logan plus a crazy amount of, you know, their <laughs> film equipment and stuff. So it it took, um, I mean, he, yeah, <laughs> he's the very best person for such a job. My name is Allison Crisatello, and I'm the director of the Canadian Ice Core Lab at University of Alberta, and I'm a high-altitude mountaineer. What we were doing is we were gonna, I was going to be part of a film crew that would film Ali Crisatello, who's this famous glaciologist who was heading up there with a crew of about six, well, a total of seven of them, to get up onto the top um, summit plateau of Mount Logan at around 5,200 meters. And um, while they're up there, they're going to drill an ice core on the kind of the highest place in Canada on the largest non-polar ice cap in the world. Mount Logan is the highest mountain in Canada at 5,959 meters. It looms in Kluwani country in the Yukon, rugged country filled with big mountains, windy lakes, glaciers, grizzly bears, and mountain goats. Logan is the second highest peak in North America after nearby Mount Denali in Alaska. The two mountains are in the St. Elias Range. I think for most of my life so far, I kind of ping-ponged between my two loves, you know, cryosphere science and cryosphere exploring. <laughs> I mean, even in, in grad school, I think, you know, I would I'd work in Antarctica and then be in, a, be in an ice core lab for a month and then write a bunch of papers and then take four months off and go to the Himalayas. And it was like a, I, everything was not integrated. I felt like I was always um, picking and choosing and just ping-ponging between stuff. And it wasn't really until until I got this position here at U, U of A and, um, you know, have been started my own lab and leading big projects um, that I can steer um, that I've been able to kind of integrate it all. And it feels really cool. This was Allie's third time climbing Mount Logan and the first time she planned to stay on the summit plateau to drill ice samples. The film crew Greg was there to support. They were making a film for National Geographic about Allie. National Geographic supported the trip as part of its Perpetual Planet Initiative, which is supported by Rolex. That's according to an email from Allie's contact with National Geographic. There were sort of basically two phases of this project. Um, the first phase being climbing Logan, you know, from base camp up to the summit plateau in order for the the whole team to be able to work safely at the altitudes that the the core was being drilled at. Kluane National Park is is the largest mountains in Canada. When when we were flying into the bottom of Mount Logan, it was a forty five minute flight through endless mountains. It's just this sea of incredible peaks and hanging glaciers, and it's really it's it's mind blowing how deep and how vast all the mountains are there. And Logan, because of where it sits, um, it you know of course it's got this enormous summit plateau. It's twenty kilometers long. It's it's above seventeen thousand feet. Um, and it's, you know, the, the bedrock below the summit plateau plateau is very, it's deep and it's sort of a, a bowl. So the ice is kind of stagnant and it has been allowed to accumulate over very long periods of time. In the end, it took them 10 days to slowly make their way up the side of Mount Logan to the summit plateau. Some on the crew adjusted better than others. 
Um, the second night, we woke up in the morning, we're all ready to go, and all of a sudden, the um, mechanic, the guy who's in charge of the drill, the essential guy that if anything goes wrong, um, he's the guy to repair the drill. He, he spent the night um, vomiting and diarrhea at like minus 15 or 20, and essentially right away, there was discussion whether the whole trip was already canceled. Anyhow, he eventually overcame that. It took him, he spent quite a lot of time going slower than the rest of us and, and overcame it. But that, that sickness actually went through three of the seven scientists and kind of, they'd all get wrecked and, and throwing up and not feeling good. So this took all the unknowns of a regular mountain climb and then added in us having to stay at 17,000 feet on this high elevation, high plateau and, and just to live there for two weeks in itself is, is harsh on the body. I mean, I personally lost 15 pounds. Um, most of us lost about 10% of our body weight. And then, of course, the second phase being having all of the drill and all of the scientific equipment flown up there and drilling the thing and getting the ice flown off. And I did have a, a big dome tent flown up over there, so we were able to drill basically no matter what the weather was. And I believe it was 11 days of drilling with the drill being on about 14 hours a day, um, which is a lot. And um, it's a really long time <laughs> to stay up there at that kind of altitude. I, I've i never done such an experiment on myself staying, you know, around 18,000 feet for almost two weeks. At that point, another person in the in their crew ended up getting hape high altitude pulmonary edema which is um, basically his body wasn't adjusting and and he wasn't absorbing enough oxygen and and he he got quite close to death really he was coughing all night and for many nights and we brought him some um, some steroids to use and then eventually I ended up long lining at, at like 17,000 feet this helicopter came in with a hundred foot line off the bottom and I ended up hooking him to it <clears throat> and flying him away. In the end, Greg hooked up two more scientists to long lines attached to hovering helicopters because they were suffering from the altitude. He ended up joining the drill team. I didn't have that much to do once we were up there filming, and I was like, well, I might as well join them and, and make it work as efficiently as possible. And, but the drill itself is kind of, I've been trying to figure out how to explain it. It's almost say like it's like a, a almost a seesaw that, that what you're able to do is you're able to balance it horizontally and pull the ice core out and then you seesaw it vertically and then you're able to the drill is able to go down into this hole and you slowly bring drill out a meter each time like the max you ever get is a meter maybe a meter 20 i think at one point they got a meter 50 of ice core so there's a, a center the center stick of the ice core which is the very most pristine part of the core it's never it hasn't not only have we not touched it, like it hasn't even seen the air in however many years old it is. After they set up the tents, the teams used a radar to find the best place to drill the ice. When Greg mentioned sonar, what they were using was a radar. And we we're kind of looking for around 250 meters down to bedrock. And uh, they ended up, the, the man in charge of the sonar, who I flew out a couple days later, he... Um, he found a spot that was between 240 and 270 meters is what he said. So we started drilling there and that was our goal. It's kind of like a marathon. We thought that, that was the end, you know, 250, 260. And, um, you know, we're doing about 30 meters a day. So any, anything past that is going to be an extra day or what have you. So as, as we're drilling, we kind of hit his points of 250. 
then we had all sorts of bets going on. Then we hit 260, then we hit 270, and then it's the next day, and we hit 280, 290, 300. And, you know, all of a sudden, we're, we're, we're 50 meters deeper than he thought and getting frustrated because, you know, it's going to happen. We've already got a few people that are sick. I've flown off, by now, I've flown off three people, you know, that are just, their bodies aren't doing well at that elevation. And, and um, you know, here we are going deeper and deeper and getting quite frustrated because we assumed we were going to be hitting bedrock. And um, it got to the point where, yeah, we're, we got 327 meters in and we'd used all our bags to wrap all the ice cores up. We'd use all our, bo- we'd use everything because we were well beyond what we thought we were going to drill for. The latitude of Logan means that the altitude is felt very heavily. So I think where our where our ice coring site was feels more like between 20 and 21,000 feet to the body. And that's not an altitude that you sort of acclimatize or, or recover at. Um, so <laughs> for those 11 days of really, really long drill hours, um, you know, I don't think anyone felt super good. Um, I, you know, none of us were sleeping that well and it, it's kind of hard to eat and all these things. And it was just really incredible to watch basically <laughs> amazing people suffer all for a unified cause. But yeah, the reward is that ice core is that now that they've got that we pulled out, we pulled out 327 meters of ice and it was all really nice ice cores that were going to be really easy for them to study for the next 10 or 15 years. The more I looked into it, the more I realized what a wild trip I was on. It wasn't just like a run of the mill um, ice core mission. It was like, it was as high risky and, and impressive a feat as, as anything I've, I've ever seen, really. A core from Mount Logan that's sitting right on the Gulf of Alaska in the middle of the North Pacific has the potential power of telling us something about long-term climate variability in the North Pacific that, say, an Antarctic or a high Arctic ice core couldn't just because of its location on Earth. Um, and in terms of, you know, tens of thousands of years of climate history, that's, it's very, very unique outside of the polar regions. There aren't very many places that over these really long timescales don't see any melt, even in the height of summer. Um, and also just in a more kind of, uh, geographical sense, like have all of those, the right conditions, um, for, for this, these long-term records to like to be laid down in the snow and never melt basically and 27 meters of ice samples from Mount Logan's Summit Plateau were flown to waiting trucks and driven to the Canadian Ice Core Lab at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, which has ice core samples from all over the world. The archive here, so we, like the minus 40 um, kind of ice library, has one and a half kilometers of ice in it right now, uh, not including what just came here from Logan. Um, most of it is from the Canadian High Arctic, um, but there, there are, there are cores and, and samples from, from all over the world. 
Meanwhile, Greg and Allie hopped on a bush plane flown by a young Kiwi named Andy who's fulfilling his dreams of flying small planes in Yukon's big mountains. He flew them to the Kluwani Lake Research Station. I mean, it was such a nice feeling when we finally came out to just be smelling the trees and and seeing nature because 26 days of white, bleak mountain stuff is is great, but coming back was, was way better. I mean, this, I, I can't even put it into words what this project means to me, but also just um, to be on this end of it now, having having actually pulled it off and to have the ice, it's, a, it's about 10 meters from where I'm sitting right now, um, safely back here. I think most longer-term climate records, you know, they give us a backward-looking perspective so that we can look forward. There's also specific aspects of... Um, the Logan Ice Core that I think will be very um, important, sort of counterintuitively in some places on the planet, places at higher elevation are experiencing more rapid increases in temperature, which is really important in a lot of regions. Um, you know, some of the the other regions where this is happening are um, there are billions of people who depend on water <laughs> Um coming from these areas, um, not Logan, but, but um, some of these other areas experiencing the same phenomenon. And so in the, I mean, the, where Logan sits is the largest nonpolar ice field on earth. It's just a mind blowing amount of snow and ice uh, locked up. And so there's, you know, there's a lot of concern about um, not just the elevation dependent warming at higher altitudes, but warming in general across across the St. Elias and the Icefield ranges. Um, and then, you know, more specifically, some of the certain things that we'll be looking at in the core um, are, um, for example, reconstructing wildfire history over time. this is really interesting like one because I hadn't been on any expeditions and I've always I'm trying to have more value to my expeditions this was exactly what I was looking for but also as an environmentalist who often you always hear them talking about these climate records and ice cores it kind of gave me this view into the other side of it where they're getting these ice cores and and you know as much as this trip is going to be for climate science like you know we use so much fossil fuels to get to there like there's so so many eggs cracked to make um, the omelet or whatever but it, it was Still, the ideally all the information and everything we get from that uh, overshadows any carbon usage and and helps just kind of figure out the future and how to make the world a better place. But actually, to be on that one side, we're like, oh, I'm part of it, getting this incredible ice core. And yeah, it was like Ali and I clicked and we had a blast up there. And you know, quite honestly, I'm looking forward to whatever next expedition she invites me on. The third phase of this expedition starts on July 11th, when Allie and many of her colleagues will start to meticulously cut up the ice samples to study them. Uh, that center pristine stick will go, um, essentially it gets directly melted and put into a mass spectrometer, an ICPMS. Um, and that gives us um, a, a huge suite of elements, things like heavy metals. Um, another stick will give us... Um, 
stable oxygen isotopes. Another stick will give us major ions, so, um, you know, sodium and chloride and things that come from the ocean um, that get that get transported and then precipitated in, in snow on, up on up on the top of Mount Logan and tell us about what's what's been happening off the coast in the past. Um, we will take a stick um, and I mentioned quickly that will go specifically um, toward this wildfire reconstruction. Um, there's all sorts of sort of newer newer techniques um, for looking at not only you know wildfire um, frequency in the past, but what exactly uh, was burning. So we can just kind of sort out different vegetation change. Um, so there'll be a stick that goes to um, a colleague's lab for that. Yeah, both. Um, Myself and Kira Holland, my PhD student who's working on this, um, as well as um, many, many colleagues. It takes a lot of people to do, um, to do something like this. I'm Megan Dooling. What a great story produced by Megan Dooling in Revelstoke, B.C. And we travel up north to the Mount Leighton Hot Springs Resort. Dustin Porter, a BC filmmaker, tracked down the history of the resort. The Mount Leighton Hot Springs Resort was recently featured in his Abandoned Places video series. The resort sits along the eastern shore of Lake Else Lake, just south of Terrace, British Columbia. That's in the north of the province, roughly 800 kilometers south of the Yukon border. Part of the resort, the hotel and restaurant, are still in operation, but the hot springs and theme park were closed many years ago. They remain untouched since their closure in 2010. And that's too bad because the hot springs are said to be the hottest in Canada, reaching a temperature of 30 degrees Celsius. They are the second largest hot springs in North America after Glenwood Springs in Colorado. The owners of the Hot Springs Resort still own the 1,000-acre property. Marlene and Bert Orleans purchased it in 1985 with the intent to expand the hotel and restaurant and natural hot springs to include a water park feature and also a conference center. However, new regulations regarding indoor mineral pools came into effect and killed the project. Pamela Hassan is in Smithers, B.C. She spoke with filmmaker Dustin Porter, who was authorized by the owners to film the closed section of the resort during the whole day, a resort the owners still hope to revive. They're just looking for the right person with the right project. Mount Leighton Hot Springs Resort is a spot that's been on my list for years like that's a big location that you can see right from the highway so it's been on the recommendeds list from viewers for i mean since the beginning it was just getting all the way north to pursue that story being from williams lake that's a long drive up to terrace and last year i was heading north so that was my first story of the north and 
it's really difficult to find the owners of that place. So I just went right there, told them who I am, what I'm doing, was able to get contact for the owners. And I think the fact that I was pursuing a professional product instead of wanting to just explore, they gave me access to their property. They gave me a full tour of the location and then gave me free reign to film it for the whole day. And walking through that location is, it's unlike any other location because it's so pristine. From the day it was shut down, it's remained private property, closed off to vandals and stuff. So walking around there, it's unbelievable. You can see the facility that was in operation and enjoyed by thousands of people for years. And then you can see the half of the resort that was under production, but never actually finished. So it was it was wild walking through there and getting to see that firsthand. I guess what are you feeling when you're walking when you're walking through there? What you know? What are you feeling and what and what are you thinking? Or do you just look at it from a videographer's point of view and can't can't get out of that perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. Oftentimes, when I'm at a location, I am looking at it as a filmmaker, and that came from years of training on cruise ships because when I was filming short excursions. My whole first contract, I had a hard time focusing on the job. I focused on how much fun I was having. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm very focused on the job. So I don't really appreciate the location until I'm back editing, especially if I have interviews. Uh, that's when I really appreciate and learn about the location. But walking around it, this one is unique because it's not vandalized. And I think that's just a product of being in the north. There isn't the dense populations of people like I hate to say it, but in a city looking for things to do. Like in the North, there's so much to do. People aren't really going and breaking windows and spray painting things. Mm -hmm. So it's it's nice to see that as a change because it's pretty rare that you find something that has been, um, quotations, abandoned. Within a couple of years, usually it's been destroyed by vandals. Yeah, This is one of the most unique places in all of Canada as far as hot springs go because it has major untapped potential there they're sitting on 900 acres that goes that backs up to lake else lake so you have unlimited fresh water and combine that with the hot springs we should have all greenhouses on that property it could be year-round produce and it could feed all of the northwest that's what i think is unique about that place and it's grossly underutilized kudos to the owners that have it right now they will not sell it to somebody that doesn't have the right intentions for the property they've had huge money offers from bison farms trying to buy that property just to put bison on it and they've shot it down they're waiting for somebody to come with a business plan for a wellness retreat or the example i gave with the greenhouses yeah so hopefully somebody will come in with money and you will need money to start that but it would be a huge business yeah um, so what's your next abandoned destination or are you allowed to give away or tease anything about it? Uh, well, I'm Alaska bound right now. I'm currently in Stewart, BC. So that is on the border of Hyder, Alaska. Yep. That's not the Alaska I'm looking for. I'm going up through Anchorage and Whittier. Um, I can't give away too much this trip because it's finally the first trip where I'm redoing a route. So I have a whole lot of locations kind of in the works right now. But the next video that will be coming out I do produce a story on Hyder, Alaska, really neat little town isolated within Canada. And then I take a motorbike up to the old Grand Duke mine. Um, I'd like to just have a message to all of the people that get out there and adventure these locations. Uh, on the channel, 
as I'm as the channel gets bigger, more people are going out and enjoying these adventures that I'm putting out there. And at the end of every video, I have a slogan: "Take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints." It's something that's it sounds kind of silly, but I've always lived by that because if everyone that visits these places takes something away, it doesn't take long until there's nothing left. And those artifacts that are there, whether they're worth money or not. That's what preserves the history of the location. So I always like to make that apparent. Dustin, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm sure you're busy and I'm, I'm glad that I got you in a place where you have good reception as well because the call was nice and clear, but I really appreciate your time. Pamela Hassan's full interview with Dustin Porter is available on our website at canada-info.ca. And that's it for us at Viewpoints. Thanks to our journalists, Megan Dooling, Pamela Hassan, and their guests, National Coordinator Maureen McEwen, to the artists who grace us with their music, you know it would not be the same without you. Viewpoints is produced by the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm Borch Desang, your host and producer. Nice to have you with us. See you next week.